This is The Tortoise, the podcast that digs deep into the possibilities of slow. My name is Brooke McCallery. I'm your host, and I'm joined by Ben McCallery. G'day. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? Yeah, I'm good. I feel cosy. Oh, it's really cosy in here. Yeah, it's rainy outside. Like, it's a dreary winter's day. We've got the fire on. I've got some tea. Sitting sitting fireside in my armchair. Got a nice little new microphone set up, so hopefully the sound's a bit better. I know. I know. Apologies for the sound, people. They're just some feedback that we've got. It's too quiet, so um, I'm working on improving that. Uh, and it's a delicate balance between too quiet and an unedited version, which we're trying to go for, right? Like we're trying to be more like unedited. Well, we basically are, unless one of us like sneezes or coughs into the microphone. Or farts. Sure. If, if you do that, it's something. It's really wrong. <laughs> something with you. going wrong, but. <laughs> so I feel good. How about you? Yeah, good. I'm likewise enjoying a nice cuppa. Nice little cuppa. Um, looking out into a, yeah, a very wet and windy day. And so there's no better place to be than having a chat with you about mental load. The mental load, yes. It's uh, a topic that has been recurrent in conversations in this house, I feel like, this year. Uh, you know, what we mean by the mental load, who is bearing it, why and how and what that looks and feels like. But also just more broadly, I feel like the conversation around burnout, particularly in women, in a lot of um, articles that I'm reading, conversations that I'm listening to, podcasts that I'm listening to, everyone is just so tired. Mm. And this felt like the right time to have this conversation. To be honest with you, I didn't even know what mental load was in the context that we're talking about. Okay. Like I'm very naive about mental load and it existing. Mm-hmm. Did I introduce you to that? You did. I'm sorry. You did. If it stressed you out, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It did. It, it opened my eyes, I think, a little bit to what is mental load mm. and probably highlights a lot of the stereotypes that we'll probably talk about uh, in this discussion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm coming in at, yeah, very naive. Okay. Mm. Well, that's a, I think that's not a bad place to have the conversation from because it means that you're not coming into it with your mental whipping chair and neither am I. Exactly. That's good. Exactly. All right. Let's, let's just jump in. So when I first said mental load to you in the context of that conversation, whenever that was, what did you picture? Like, what did you think I was saying? Yeah. First of all, I, th- I thought you were saying and it explicitly relating to domestic non-paid work. Okay. That's immediately what I went to. Right. So cleaning bathrooms, cleaning kitchen, vacuuming. Yep. Cleaning, you know, washing sheets on bed, like all the normal domestic Mm -hmm. activities plus one-off domestic things that just have to happen around the house. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be paying bills and, you know, talking to a tradesman about something, you know, like all that sort of stuff. So that's immediately what I thought. And I think that's certainly part of it. 
but for me and I think a more broadly accepted kind of definition of mental load is it takes into account all of that stuff, but it's the invisible uh, cognitive labor. So it's not even the doing necessarily of it. It's the thinking it's about thinking it. It's thinking about it that needs That it needs to, to be, be done, done and the planning for it. And the for, for me, it's also the work that I do on myself that allows me to plan for things and to be aware of things that need to be done and to be present for things. Like it goes deep. I I would include all of the stuff that I do to help me become a better listener, a better parent, a better, you know, human being. I would include all of that in it too because I do that not because Instagram tells me that I should but because all of those things help to create the kind of life that, you know, we want to live. And I it – I'm not saying I begrudge it at all, that part of it anyway. I think it's important and valid and valuable, but it is it all adds up to that invisible cognitive labor. If that do you understand what I'm like the difference? I do. I do. I think I do. Mm-hmm. What w- some quick question and it's going it's me as a male wanting to go to solution mode straight away. Yep. Do you have to have mental load? Why can't everything just be you think about it and you just either? Go on. I'm really interested in this. Do it mm-hmm. or delegate it. DD. Why can't you just go, okay, when it first comes in your head, instead of having a load, why can't it just be an output? Why can't it just be like that's what we're going to do or Ben, you go and do that or like. Do you think that would work? As part of the whip process, I think it probably could. Do you? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I, I, I appreciate that you you and I have very different ways of looking mm. at the world. Like you're a solutions person, 100%. You, to a fault sometimes, it's like, let's talk about something, let's fix it. Whereas maybe that's not what the conversation was about, fixing it. But that's your default. And that makes you really excellent at doing certain things because – you're a fixer, you're a solutions person, you're a just get in and do it kind of person. I don't think that is applicable to a lot of the stuff that applies with mental load with parenting, for example, because so much of it is you're thinking through the stage that the kids are at and you're worrying, yes, but you're also, you know, trying to come to terms with changes and challenges and strengths and weaknesses that everyone in the family has. And you can't do anything with that. Right. That's not something that can be done with. It's something that forms the foundation on which you make decisions later because you have an understanding or you have a point of view that you have worked hard to establish. You can't that's not a that's not a doing thing. Mm. Again, I'm trying to distance my predisposition of thinking about it as domestic load. Can you give me an example of something that is not the domestic part of it sure yeah because it applies to lots of things i mean mental load applies to work it applies to relationships not just you know romantic or familial relationships all kind of relationships um you know community stuff and then household stuff and all of that so workplace um i was reading an article and they gave this example i thought it was a good one you've been asked by your boss to organize a birthday party for a colleague who is also a friend you, it's not part of your job description. You're not going to get paid extra for it, but 
It they're your colleague, they're your friend, and you, an output. you want to be able to celebrate your friend. Someone has to do it, so you're going to do it. You think about everything that invo- that is involved in that, starting at picking a date, making sure everyone's available for that date, and then looking at f- food, uh, you know, dietary requirements of everyone, making sure that you're across all of that. Then you're looking at menu, then you're looking at buying them a gift, then you're looking at giving them a speech because you want to make sure that they are celebrated because you value them. All of that is invisible. No one sees anything other than maybe the email asking about dietary requirements and dates. And meanwhile, you've given hours of your time and your energy to this thing. Mm. And that's, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to organize a birthday party for a friend, but it's invisible mental load and it takes up space that, is then taken up not by your work, not by your family stuff, not by household stuff, not by anything else. It's it's taking up space, you know, and I think that the resentment side of it comes in when it, it's sort of like we're just expected to continue to expand ourselves. And I'm speaking generally here when I say ourselves. We just, things just keep getting added in and slotted in and slotted in and like we can't go beyond capacity. So we start to feel stretched and we start to mm. feel angry and we start to feel resentful. And I think the resentment side of it comes in when it is because it is invisible and it is undervalued, all of that kind of cognitive load. Does that, yeah, can, so seeing that, can you see what I, Little what bit. the difference is? Little bit. Little bit. Yep. So the, thinking about, okay, I know you don't mm, want to just think about mm, it domestically, mm. but um, it's for me, another example would be all of the tiny tasks that have to happen around the house that n- quite literally no one else would think about. Let's talk about those TTs, mm-hmm. those tiny tasks. Okay. Have you ever thought about having to clean the side, the um, kickboards in the kitchen? No, but definitely the draw drawers and cupboards. Okay, like so that. you've thought about it and have done it on occasion. Okay, um, cleaning of windows, airing of um, linens seasonally, washing curtains, all of that kind of stuff that I. And this, before we go on any further, I don't want it to sound like I am making a list of things that I do and you don't, but I'm trying to paint a picture of the fact that this stuff takes up headspace, right? Mm. Like the kids' wardrobes, first weekend of every school holidays, I go through their wardrobes, I make sure their clothes still fit them, I find out what else they need, we make sure we go do the shopping so that they've got shoes that fit and they've got pants that don't don't come up to their calves, like that kind of stuff. It takes up space, Mm. you know, and... In our relationship, you work far more than I do in terms of paid work. Your hours are far longer and you're paid far, far better than I ever have been. So it is what it is, right? But it's it's relentless. And I think it's invisible and it's undervalued just in general. And again, this is not like a... We're talking about... We're also a hetero couple. Like yes. We have no idea... Whether this is even like a gender, th- is it a gender thing? I think, um, or is it based on 
like paid employment, everything runs off that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, all I know is that there have been studies done recently that show that in hetero relationships, um, women are typically doing two plus hours a day more domestic, mm. regardless of, of their work, um, their paid workload. Uh, and the mental load is more on top of that again. Mm. That's in hetero relationships. So I think that there is a gender role there and I think it's absorbed from, you know, how we're brought up. It's absorbed through societal messages. I found a quote online uh, and I don't know who said it because it's one of those ones that does the rounds of like Instagram and stuff over time and you can never tell who's actually said it first. Yeah. But it kind of resonated with me. It said, there is an entire generation of women who are drowning because they were raised with traditional gender roles while being empowered to be independent. These women still take on the majority of house duties while killing it in the workplace and they're tired. It's like that's sandwich generation. Right. Yeah. Going back to last episode. Going back to the last theme. That's a great case study for the sandwich generation. Yeah. So I do think that gender roles do play a part in it, but I don't think it's only that. I think there's definitely personality. Um, you know, there's people who have perfectionistic tendencies versus people who don't. Mm. You know, people who are details-oriented versus people who aren't. People who are probably more naturally wired to be okay with things being just, like, fine rather than awesome versus people who aren't. Mm. I think personality definitely plays a part in it. I think it's a question for me of value right so value and society's society's place of value within that sort of mental load i don't think it's valued at all right yeah and i think that's actually where the issue is that's the issue because i I worked for an insurance company back mm-hmm. in the day that released a product called Million Dollar Woman. And it was in life insurance for someone that was not in the paid workforce. Yep. Or like part-time mm-hmm. or casual that wouldn't have a big enough chunk of life insurance as part of their superannuation yep. because if you're part-time, you, your super is much lot less. Mm-hmm. And superannuation is pension. Yeah, for those that are not Australian. Australian. And that product failed miserably because of society's was too bit like it was too out there. It was too too foreign. Do you know what I mean? Like it was too. What does it mean? Like how do you how does this work? All this sort of stuff. They just couldn't get their head heads around it. I think that's fascinating though because I I remember when that came out and I was deep in the throes of like. Two young kids, like maybe a one-year-old and a baby. You were like the perfect target market for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I felt seen by that because the, the kind of, you know, the messaging was if something was to happen to this partner in a relationship, everything would grind to a halt because of all of the unpaid work that happens in the home through them and because of them. And that that felt kind of good to me as a mum at that stage because mm. I'm like finally yes a hundred percent if you know if I wasn't able to do what I do we're stuffed you know and it's it's sad to me that society like, it was too big an ask too big of a like, for people to to 
turn around and put a monetary value on what is typically a woman's role in a hetero relationship of all of these household tasks. Mm. And they're like, well, I'm not doing that because then we have to rethink everything. If we rethink that, if we start putting a dollar value on that kind of work, then that reshapes the entirety of the way that society is, you know, formed and and the things that, that we value and the things that we champion. And no one was ready for that. And I don't think people are now. now. I, I really don't. don't I think you? No, I think that the conversation is shifting and I think the, the people for whom it actually applies are talking way more openly about it. But I don't see any solutions being so. It's still the solution is not societal. It's not cultural. We're making it individual. We're mm. saying to that person in the, in the home, in the relationship, we're saying you need to come up with ways of better managing this and i don't i don't know what the answer is but i just think it's really interesting that you know someone tried a, a product someone tried a you know a, a thing a, a, yeah. thing, yeah. a solution yeah. no one took it no one and now 10 years later we're still having the conversation i'd argue that it's probably more prevalent burnout is more prevalent um people are doing it far tougher now than they were even 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, we're still making the the problem an individual one. We have come a long way just in terms of domestic load uh, and unpaid work within the household because 10 years, 10 plus years ago, women were doing, and I'm talking along gender, gender lines mm-hmm. here, yeah, like double if not triple. Mm-hmm. The figures are now moving to a more equality there. And I think that is um, the case in Australia particularly. Right. Okay. I have read that specifically yeah. Australian households yep. have – it's evened up. But, again, that's with the domestic load. It, they drew a line between that and the mental load uh, and it's still not by any stretch even or coming to be even. Um yeah, I think that that's a that's a positive thing. It is. It's definitely positive. Yeah. But I think going back to your question of value, I know for me that's something I have struggled with our entire married life is the fact that and this is partly tied to the work that I do as a writer, chronically undervalued. Mm. I mean, I don't think I've had a year as a writer where I've made anywhere near minimum wage. Mm. Um, except one, when the the year after slow came out, that was the only year I think that I made beyond a minimum wage. So that has always played into it too. Um, and then to have on top of that, what I consider work, domestic work, family work, you know, unpaid work, it's not only invisible, but it's also undervalued. And that has messed with my sense of esteem my confidence, um, my sense of my ability to provide value in other capacities. And I think that that's not unusual for people who have, you know, had a similar kind of trajectory. It's, and I don't necessarily think that the answer is um, kind of enforcing everyone to go back to work full time. 
across the board either. You know, I, I just think that we need to shift our sense of what we do and don't value in society um, in terms of the energy and effort that, that goes into it. Yeah. And it's interesting, though, to view all of this through the lens of feminism too mm-hmm. because to me feminism is simply about equality. That's all. It's about the belief that everyone should be treated equally. The end full stop. It's not scary. It's yep. not crazy. Yep. It's just very plain and simple. So that also includes people having the choice to, you know, to live the way they wanted to live and they want to live and that works for them and their household, their family, their dynamic. So even talking about all the different options can sometimes feel like I'm being untrue to that too. You know, it's a really, I find it really, it's a really tricky thing to talk about without feeling like I'm doing someone a disservice, I suppose. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does actually. It really does. Because that's not my intention at all. It's a really, yeah, that's the patriarchy, right? Like that's, this is a patriarchal society. And it's having to unpack all of that and all the stuff that I learned as a kid and, you know, all of the things that I saw role modelled and continue to see role modelled. I do think it's it would be an interesting thing. I don't know how you could ever do it, but, like, compare the pressures that, you know, women particularly of previous generations felt versus the pressures that women of our generation's generation feel because their role models were different, mm-hmm. their gendered um, roles were different. The expectations were different, but also I just think that like social media and the internet in general has opened us up to this entire world of possibility and expectation and standards that previous generations didn't have to operate underneath. And we don't have to, I suppose, but it's very hard not to. So it's like what used to be good enough is no longer good enough. It's got to be great. It's got to be great. And, you know, if you're part-time or casual or, you know, not in employment, you should have a side hustle as well. Right, exactly. So it's it's just it's always adding on. And it's adding, yes. It's, it's that, never taking away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very additive, the pressures that people are under. So it's like, okay, what can we take away? How can we lessen the load? <clears throat> I know for me, any something I've had to learn to do is A, recognize my resentments because they're very real and very human. I think everyone goes through periods of resentment. But slowing down long enough to recognize them. And again, this is what I was sort of getting at the mental load, the work of journaling, of Mm. practicing self-awareness, of reflecting, of taking myself away from social media so I can actually figure out what my definition of success is, what my definition of, you know, showing up for my family, like kind of that's all work. It takes time and effort to simplify the messaging and doing all of that then allows me to tap into how I'm feeling and I've found over the years on and off how I'm feeling is resentful. So you get to that point and then it's a matter of communicating it and then, you know, 
that's an uncomfortable conversation to have when we're both partners in the relationship and we work really hard to see each other as part of the same team and often we'll say that to each other to say, hey, I'm feeling a bit resentful doesn't feel great. But it's important because nothing changes unless we go there. What I feel like that's not something that you would actively do unless I don't know is it probably not yeah yeah probably not I just keep on thinking again to like solution mode sure like this is this is how we often say you and I I'd love to live like a, a week in your shoes like what's it like for you yeah and we've made this observation particularly when you've been sick and I'm like I just wish I could like feel what you're feeling mm-hmm. and understand just it. understand it more I do understand it I don't think you do until you're just like living it yeah but wouldn't it be it would just be fascinating to find out the toll that mental these mental load mm-hmm. and this you know this whole thing being seen as being undervalued and societal expectation like all that sort of combined mm. into a fitness tracker <laughs> bear with me that you could look at and it spits out this like chart over the day and saying like, and it measures the mental load as like a strain. Like this sure, is the yeah. equivalent of a board presentation. Sure. Or you know, like I would love a comparison. Like if you could map. It's never going to no, happen. But if you could map but the cognitive output. That's, that's That to me would then, I would, you know, there's only so much you can empathize with someone in these situations yep. without actually living through it. So that would then just crystallize it so much more. And you take into consideration relative strain of individuals and, mm-hmm. and you know, you'd be able to compare it then. Okay. So that I, I agree with you. That would like, be fascinating. How fascinating would that be? So then let's say that you were able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And then you could put a dollar value on it. Correct. Any metric then you would be able to then, yeah. But what I'm saying is if you, you know, you were able to track your cognitive output versus my cognitive output, and I don't say versus in like a combative way, but, you know. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And then like dollar for output, output, you know, metric. Yeah. And the difference in that would be. I'm telling you, staggering. I have no doubt, no doubt that your mind is just as full as mine day to day, hour to hour. I have no doubt. And I'm not, this is never about comparing that and saying someone is doing it harder than the other because I take on a lot of the mental load and the domestic load because, as I said, your workload is far higher than mine at the moment. That ebbs and flows and we ebb and flow, but currently and probably this year, it's fair to say, um, that that's the case. So let's say both as hardworking, you know, conscientious people that we are, we're both showing up equal-ish yeah. mentally yeah. in our various roles. Mm-hmm. And I believe that. You're getting paid for it. Mm. I'm not. You know? And that's – I wish that that wasn't the metric I kept coming back to. I really do because I believe in a world where that – isn't 
that shouldn't be the the measure of value. But as it stands at the moment, it kind of is. You get paid for the work that you do. I get paid for some of the work that I do, but the stuff that we're talking about now, like the extra, the invisible, the unrecognized, no one pays you for it. Mm. And I'm not saying I want to be, but it's Should value. That's how we then, show value, right? Yeah. Should there be then as part of someone's job description, it's recognizing like it's a tick. Like if you go for a job, I, what is your marital status? Mm. Just bear with me. Mm-hmm. You know, do you, what's your marital status? Do you have kids? And, and, and find out some really quite basic information about your living, like, Just your experience and yeah. circumstance, right? So then you as an employee don't get paid. You as a family get paid because that then includes things like just in a job description, it'll just have, say, you know, key responsibilities and criteria, set criteria and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it has like lists out all the things based on that job. But it also includes. You don't even, you're not even buying what you're saying. <laughs> Go on. I'm trying to. Blue sky thinking or blue ocean thinking is, you know, the, it in, includes a payment as part of your salary, no, that's not right. I, I understand what you're it, saying. It, it includes metrics like we'll be away from home. We'll be, in, you know, we'll, we'll not be able to do anything over eight hours per day. Like, you, like it's just, it's trying to put the emphasis less on, okay, you come and work and you, you do the job, but there's also a lot going behind the scenes for you to be able to do the job. Right, yeah. And so it's acknowledging the fact that, yeah, you won't be able to drop your kids off from school, to school, from pick them up from mm-hmm. school. You won't be able to clean the bathroom. Like it's – I'm not articulate. I need to think about it a little bit more, but there's there's something in there that it's not – Legally, yes, the contract is between an employee, mm-hmm. a single person, but it also recognises the great work that has to happen for that employee to be able to do that job. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I mean, I see what you're saying. So it's not me getting paid as an employee. Yep. It's McCallery getting pay- paid. Right. It's the McCallery family. I see some significant gaps in that plan, but huge I huge gaps. I, I I'm just trying to change like the conversation around what it is to be valued. Yes. Okay. We're not going to be able to like the government's not going to come out and say everyone will get a minimum like wage. Right. So that's what I was going to say. What you're basically advocating for there is universal basic income well that's it's sort of like that yeah but it's not really it's still it does it's not called that it's just built into your employee contract employment contract yeah. then there'll be issues around companies like you know well yeah it's not a company's job yeah, to yeah, yeah. you so, know to do that anyway huge huge holes huge <laughs> i appreciate it's a big swing i do appreciate the big swing big swing no ding <laughs> right um, I think going back though to what I was saying about communication, mm. we've had conversations where it's mostly been me 
saying we need to renegotiate, recalibrate what the shared load looks like. Mm. I don't think that you've brought that up yourself before. Don't think so. I'm not being a smart aleck. I actually don't think you have. But anyway, it's they're conversations that we have had. How like how do you how do you feel when those conversations happen? Because I try very hard for it to never sound like a finger pointing sort of exercise or a you know a blaming kind of exercise. Yeah, it's hard not to feel like a lazy. B not why can't I just think of that myself and do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like a bit ashamed, mm-hmm. lazy, ashamed, mm-hmm. and three would be. But I don't want to do that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say defensive, but all right, <laughs> you went with honest. I like it. <laughs> I don't want to clean the windows. Sure, no one does. This is the point. Yeah. Um, maybe someone does. I apologize. You know if you what like cleaning the windows. would. Um, you know what, for me personally, what would make it b- better? The conversation around it? Yeah. Yep. Is every September we clean the windows. Okay. Do you know what I mean? And then every December we clean the outside of the house, which is kind of like what we do now. It is actually what we do. And, yeah. and that's in the back of my brain. And every November we stain the deck mm-hmm. when it's not pouring. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so that's, that's interesting. That's in the back of my head is I know that and that's a that's mental load, right? Like that's an yeah, example of mental load. It is. And it's interesting because I I will have rhythms that I have created for myself uh that can be weekly, so that includes things like household tasks that just need to be done roughly every week and then some that are seasonal and, I know and that. some I know I know, I, I know you yeah. know that. Yeah. But there are other ones that I have that I've never communicated to you. Seasonal, yearly. Yeah, and I've never communicated them to you. So that's on me. I mean, that's on me for not talking about it and sort of – and because I'm I'm much the same. I find attaching tasks to set periods of time really helpful and it just means that you don't have to keep doing – this is a light bulb moment. You don't have to keep doing the mental work of figuring out when to do these things because we know – on Thursdays I do this and it's then on the Fridays part, I do it's, that. It's part of the And yeah, also, you know, rhythm. exactly, yeah. being being kind of flexible with it rather than being routine and strict and like stuck to very specific time frames, you can be flexible with it to a certain extent yes. which allows you for the, you know, the ebbs and flows of life. Hmm. So that's that's down to communication. That's not even down to doing the the work of it because that's sort of almost done. But, you know, maybe once a year or once every six months we sit down, we... You know what... you know what We talk yeah. about the, the next two quarters, what kind of tasks are attached to it, why we may or may not be able to do it, how we can shift things around. Yeah, what, what, what's hard is when you keep it to yourself and then just be like, oh, I'm the only one that does this mm. and just come out with it and I'm like, I don't even know that that right. was part of like your thought processes. Because I think at some point I just get tired of thinking about it 
So I don't want to. So communicate that. But I don't, I've already done the thinking about it. I don't want to keep talking about it. Do you know what I mean? Like talking about it is another version of thinking about it. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's correct. Well, don't talk about it. Just do it then. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's almost the, because I have those situations too, where I'm, I'm thinking about it. And instead of communicating it with you, I'll just go and do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Because it's it's too hard. To, well, it's not too hard. Well, it might be too You don't hard. want to double dip and that's what it feels like. I don't want to double dip. Yeah. I may as well just go and do it so it'll be just done. Yep. Pragmatic, but not necessarily healthy. No, I think it's a little bit passive aggressive. To do it all the time. Yes. Okay, some things, like the lawns, like... I'm just doing the lawns. It's an unwritten law that that's what I will do. It's an unwritten law. Okay. I like mowing the lawns. Um, But you do them. I like doing it, but you actually do it. So that's a difference as well. But what, sorry, when I was saying it's an unwritten law, it's like, why is it an unwritten law? Because that's what you grew up doing. Do you know? We never communicate when I'm going to do the lawns, do do we? Yep. No, we do not. We don't. Like schedule it, but you will say to me, I'm going to try and do the lawns on Friday afternoon or I'm going to do them on Saturday after football or whatever. Okay. Yeah, but even that is... It's so hard not to get uh, defensive about some of this stuff. But it's also, I think it's also important to have, you know, open conversation. Like none of this is fresh. We're not, we're not rehashing this stuff. We're not hashing this stuff out for the first time. Um, you know, on a podcast because that would be weird. This is stuff that we have spoken about at length. And even still, it can be tough to not feel called out. So I think you and I have gone to great lengths over the last few years particularly to do a better job of communicating, to do a better job of sharing the mental load Um you picked up a lot when my dad was unwell and when my health tanked. So there was a lot that you picked up that I just could not do. And this year has been a matter of trying to recalibrate that too, um, to a point that's more fair, I think. Um, And that's something that we have both had to want to do in order to have the conversations, in order to make any change. I think the tricky thing is if someone's in a relationship with another person who has got the better end of the deal, they have to want to change yeah, as well. You know, But that's tricky, right? When it behooves someone to continue the way they are while the other person is really struggling, like I think that that's hard as well. It's sort of having multiple conversations over time. Oh, that's that's the way to do it. It's not yeah. a one and done. It's not kind a of screaming oh, one God, and done. No. Yeah. It's a very well thought out communication over a period of time. And let's say this is coming from a person who is carrying the majority of the mental load. I'm not talking about us at the moment, like specifically. That just adds to the mental load for them to have to think through and you just said a really well thought out conversation where it doesn't feel like you're attacking where like that is not easy to do when you are feeling resentful, exhausted, burnt out, 
taken for granted. To then add on top of that, now you must have this calm, kind, compassionate conversation with your partner. And if they're going to meet you there, wonderful. But if they're going to feel called out and react, not great. Like that's just something else for this, that person to carry. And I completely understand why people are like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. It's just easier because I'm not going to think about this as well as having to think about this and this and this and this. It's it's really tricky. But I think that for us at least it's been like gradual, um, well-intentioned conversation. The the breakthrough for me back in the day, I'm talking 10 plus years ago, on the start during the start of your slow living journey mm-hmm. was when you were saying, why are we so busy doing like cleaning and spending our weekends doing all this stuff only to then Sunday afternoon turn around and your week starts again? Mm-hmm. And it was you getting us into this rhythm where we would do things and we do them on a regular occurrence rather than like a big top to tail yeah. have to clean the bathroom like yeah. once a month. It was every week cleaning but concentrating on one. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't even remember what it was, right? Mm-hmm. But it then saved us. It gave us so much more time to be able to do the things we want to do mm-hmm. on the weekend. And that for me was the big breakthrough. So it was you highlighting the benefits this is how much better our life can be if we do this and then doing the planning like and then working out the routine and who does what and that was the big thing like so it's highlighting the benefits mm-hmm. uh, rather than anything else yeah mm. okay that's interesting that you like that it went that far back yeah i yeah. distinctly remember it so it's it's a like it's a moving thing. Yeah. And yeah. that's but that's as it should be, I think, because you know, mental load for both of us looked different ten years ago than it does now. So Very of course true. you need to revisit and recalibrate. It's interesting. Lots of food for thought here, honey. Because you just made a face looking at how long we've been talking so I can't believe <laughs> how quickly that went. Well, I think it's a good that's a kind of a good point to shift into the next part of the podcast where we usually reflect on something we've read or listened to or, you know, found ourselves thinking about over the last month. And this actually dovetails really nicely into a post from the tortoise a couple of weeks ago called happiness is for losers, which I struggled with that, that headline. It felt a little negative, but I promise you that it's a really uplifting post really just talking about the difference between happiness and contentment and why I think there is ironically happiness to be found when we let go of the relentless need to be better to Mm -hmm. strive to excel and exceed expectations to be perfect yeah so you know I think that 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 does sort of relate a lot to the conversation we've been having about mental load, not because that will solve anything, but because it might help us to recalibrate again, what our expectations are of ourselves, 
of our homes, of what balance looks like, of what success looks like, of what, you know, success in, in loads of different areas of life look like, to just embrace the idea of being okay with being okay. To be fine. Yeah, to be just fine. This was huge for you. Ten years ago, mm-hmm. you were 100% a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. That was your personality. You were absolute perfectionist. And I'm not a perfectionist. I'm a people pleaser. Yeah. So that's a bad combo for us. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm always striving to be perfect and I'm not perfect. Do you know what uh, I mean? Yeah, okay. So at the risk of derailing our conversation, that's interesting. Isn't it? I yeah. just I just noticed that. I just realized that. So you were looking perfect for perfection in someone that was never going to be perfect. Oh no, perfection is for me, it's not me looking at you for like looking for perfection in you. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, if I was looking, that's what I would find, obviously. But no, God, it's a, it's very much a personal like it's it's had the lens through which I view sure. my efforts yep. of trying to make everything perfect, like the things that I do, the things that I say, the things that I write, the way I show up need to be perfect. That's something that I've been working on relentlessly. And you've done like it's incredible the amount of work you've done mm. on that. Yeah, but I, I think that there is something really powerful there for all of us in recognizing that what we I think what we think we're chasing always is happiness but by embracing contentment you know being okay with things as they are whether they are great or not we actually open ourselves up for more happiness because you find delight in whatever is in front of you rather than constantly looking for the next best version of it you know the i'll be happy when's yeah i'll be happy when i get the promotion i'll be happy when the house is clean i'll be happy when i get this job you know whatever it might be just be happy now Mm -hmm. and enjoy it for what it is but there's then a tension between settling as if it's a bad thing I don't think it is, but, you know, people view it as a bad thing and striving. And someone in the comments raised this point that I haven't stopped thinking about since she she wrote it. It was Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, she basically said, could we use our values, our personal values, as, an, as areas of focus in which we, if we want to strive, if we want to have ambition, if we want to pursue... Be perfect. No, 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 not be perfect. But if we want to improve and grow, focus those efforts in our areas of personal values. And I'd never thought about that as, you know, as a related kind of thought, but it really appeals to me, I think. Because otherwise, you know, if you are someone who has perfectionistic tendencies or is a people pleaser... Um, or is, you know, attached to a certain idea of what success looks like or, you know, whatever it might be, this thing, this, this drive that keeps pushing you, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. And that's not what my post was about. It was not about adopting mediocrity across the board all the time in everything. 
but about allowing ourselves to be average in areas of life and being fine with that. And I think the extension of that is because over time that then opens us up to opportunities for growth and improvement and betterment. Yeah. But if they are attached to the things that we value, those things that we that are most important to us in life, where, you know. I like that. Over time, we're building the sort of life that we want. It like kind of gives a us a, 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 a guide or a map. Yeah. So ironic during when you were drafting that post, you came up to me and said, could you read this? <laughs> and you said, what do you think? And I said, it's fine. And I'm like, but I want it to be excellent. <laughs> what is- but someone else commented yeah. and she's like, I'm fine with just being fine so that when I want to give my time and energy to something that is excellent, that I ask myself, could I have done any better? And the answer is no. She's like, for me, it's my writing. And I'm like, see, yes. Okay. Yeah. And that, that sort of crystallized it yeah. again. It's like, you don't have to be just fine with everything. And, you know, um, but if there's something in your life that a number of people said, like their relationships, they, they, they spend time and effort wanting to excel in their relationships because the flow on of that is so important to them, you know? So it was, I kind of felt like a fraud when you said it's just fine. And I, I know you were being a smart ass. I was, that's the only reason why I did it. It was great. It wasn't fine. um, It's a great post. Thank you. Still aiming for excellent though. Uh, Yeah. And I reserve my judgment. (laughs) If, if that's something that, um, that resonates with you or, you know, if you're curious about wanting to know more about your own values, I I actually did run a values workshop over on the tortoise a few months ago, back in March. And it's available to everyone who is a paying subscriber, which is $5 a month. Uh, So you can definitely go and check that out. Just go to uh, brookmccallery.substack.com and, um, there's a link to it at the top of the page because I do think that values and understanding our personal values is so key. And I think I'm becoming more convinced of how important it is to living, you know, a more intentional life. Yeah. One percent. Yes. How are you going with your one percent? Uh, okay. I had a breakthrough last month, actually. Okay, share. I realized that I was still waiting for the big showy result. So the the whole the theory being that, you know, 1% effort every day or whenever you can do it does over time add up. Compound yeah. into significance. Right. But I was waiting for that. I was waiting for you know, the moment that the damn walls burst and all of my efforts kind of came to fruition at once. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not how it works. But it was interesting that I had taken that kind of mentality and applied it to the 1%. So, you know, it was like, you know, weeding the garden. I'm always talking about weeding the garden as though it's all I ever do. But, uh, you know, why isn't it making more of a difference? Why can I not see more progress? with my 15 minutes a day or my 1% of the week. Like, cause that's not the point. The point is not that you're going to have a moment of breakthrough. The point is that you are showing up for this thing regardless. Mm-hmm. 
So that was interesting. So I feel like I'd been saying all the right things, but not necessarily fully believing, believing it. Believing them, yeah. So that's shifting for me and mm-hmm. um, re, you know, reframing my expectations of what that looks like. Um, yeah, but practically speaking, it has certainly helped with my writing. Um, mm. I'm back working on my creative writing, which is really nice after having a bit of a dip kind of through the last part of April, beginning of May. So I'm trying just to apply the 1%, not going 1% and whatever else I can, you know, squeeze in. It's just 1% and just keep showing up with the 1% and have faith that over time that adds up to something. What that something is, who knows? Mm. But as a as a baseline, as a commitment, as like a acknowledgement of, you know, showing up for this thing that's important to me. That's been really helpful. And like, so like I said, last month, I think I started viewing the 1% through that lens of my values as well. And that's been kind of helpful and enlightening. Mm. Mm. What about you? Where are you up to with your 1%? My four day week. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I had a sleep in this morning. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> that, uh, and I'm going to take those sleeping on a work day, outrageous, but I'm going to take it as, as part of my overall drive for a four-day week. It's mm-hmm. those little 1% changes. Yeah. And I'm going to work insane hours this week. I just, I just know it. One of those weeks. But... I know that I started the week with a little bit of a buffer, with mm. a little bit mm. of a, I don't know. It's like almost just for my mental health almost. Yeah. So that gives you that 1% of edge. white space exactly in your head, in your, you know, your emotional. Margin. Yeah. Yeah. If it gives you that, then that might make a difference in how you approach that meeting or this recording 100%. or that report that you've got to write, you know, it's so, it's tricky. I think for you, particularly cause you're a solutions guy, you're like, how do I quantify it? Like but you can't quantify it. You'll never know whether that 1%, that 15 minutes extra that, you know, sitting Very in true. bed, having a coffee together and talking about the day, you won't ever know whether it makes a difference or not, but I think you have to trust that it does. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily, um, natural to you? Mm. I have to work at that. Yeah. But I think you do a good job mm. of like believing in it, even though you can't see it. It's not something that you can see on a spreadsheet or, yeah. So, I'm, you know, every, every month I'll do a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's just being aware of it. That's half the battle. Being aware of, of, what you're working towards and being constantly reminded of it really helps. Does it? Really helps me. It doesn't feel like a pressure? No, no. Because you're in the context of 1%, right? That's, sure. That's yeah. the key. Yeah. Like 1% improvements. Yeah. One in 1% difference. It's, yeah, it's, it's the way to go. It's revolutionary. I dig it. I find it very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting to see. There's something greater there, I'm sure, that we can do with 
the one percent. Our community, the one percent. Yeah. I don't. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to unpack let's, that with you at talk, some point. Let's talk about that. <laughs> not on a podcast. But I think that's us for the month. Yeah. Uh, just a reminder. I'm writing really regularly over on the Tortoise, which is my new home online uh, over on Substack. So again, brookmccallery.substack.com is where you will find me, or you can just Google the Tortoise, uh, and it will it will show up. I'm writing at least once a week, um, usually twice, and there's some quarterly. I'm creating workshops or retreats for paying subscribers. So the first one was, as I mentioned, values. Most recent one was a rhythms retreat where I took people through the process of creating their own morning and evening seasonal rhythms. And the next one, I think, will be about writing as self-care. Oh. But that won't be for a couple of months. So, okay, yeah, if you're interested. Journaling? Yeah, journaling will be part of it. Yeah, Yeah, journaling journaling will be part of it. It's actually a workshop that I devised, an in-person workshop that I was going to run last, you know, the year before last uh, but got derailed by COVID. Ah, okay. Um, so it's taking elements of that. Cool. Uh, so if you want to be on the list, make sure that you find out about that uh, retreat or want to take the other ones, you just head over to the Tortoise. You can sign up as a free member or as a paying member. I'd love to have you. Thanks very much for your reviews, comments on Apple Podcasts, yeah, Spotify, very... and over on the Tortoise. It's just been great. It's been amazing. Uh, yeah, cup filling. You know, one yeah. of the things that I've wanted for so many years is to develop community around this kind of space and these conversations. And I feel like finally You're that's finally happening. You know, kind of locking that in. Yeah, yeah. just the, the way that it, the, the platform over at Substack is developed and the way that we're using it as a community and just to start to see those interactions between people is so heartwarming and I feel like we're starting to really get there towards that that hard to quantify goal that I've had around community so yeah please do check it out it's a really wonderful group of people and I would love to have you there thank you obviously for those reviews as well because we have read through all of the recent ones um, and I've been really moved by them, actually. Yeah. They've been really wonderful. So thank you for taking the time to do that. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Pleasure. My darling. And until we are in your ears again, take good care, and we'll see you soon. I just saluted the microphone. No one could see that, sure but I appreciated that. it. Yeah. yeah. Bye. <laughs>